Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Elizabeth Lowe, an award-winning filmmaker who directed Stray, a wildly inventive documentary about the stray dogs who roam freely in Turkey. Early in the film, viewers are informed by a title card that, quote, Turkey is one of the only countries where it is now illegal to euthanize or hold captive any stray dog, unquote. Part of what makes Stray so striking is that Lowe manages to focus on three of these strays, including the wonderful pup protagonist, Zayton, who is highly charismatic even by dog standards and seems whip-smart as she navigates through rush hour Istanbul traffic and other day-to-day challenges that would easily thwart a lesser canine. Zayden and the other two dogs who occupy the center of the film and their narratives overlap when they connect with three homeless, somewhat nomadic Syrian refugee boys. There's a real point in human-canine connection reflected, and Lowe draws on an understated parallel between the two trios. But part of the innovation here is that Stray isn't inclined to say exactly what's on its mind. Lowe places occasional text on the screen and sometimes provides dialogue overheard about or near the dogs. Those are the movie's only sounds, apart from the zesty score. Across the entire film, there is no narration. I found Stray thrilling to watch and I've thought about it every day since. It opens in theaters and on demand this Friday, March 5th. I look forward to discussing the film with Elizabeth in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in the program, I'll speak with Amanda White, Program Manager of Wildlife Protection for the Humane Society of the United States, providing some information and analysis of a situation that happened last week in Wisconsin, whereby trophy hunters killed nearly twice the sanctioned number of wolves in just under 60 hours. This sounds awful in multiple ways and we'll hear more about this fiasco and what lessons may be learned from it later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss the extraordinary documentary Stray with its filmmaker, Elizabeth, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing DJ at WMNF.org or texting 813-433-0885. This is Elizabeth Lowe speaking by Skype from Hong Kong on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. I, I appreciate it. So as my opening comments clearly suggest, I really loved Stray for all kinds of reasons, some which we'll, of course, likely discuss in the next few minutes. But let's first talk a bit more about you. For starters, I would contend, notwithstanding the filmmaking skills and talents involved, only a bona fide dog lover could have made this movie. How do you feel about dogs? Oh, definitely. I'd be insane if I dedicated five years of my life <laughs> to tracking stray dogs and seeing what they got up to if I didn't love dogs. Yes, I um, I love dogs a lot. Um, I think they're incredible species. And I made this film because I was interested in seeing what dogs got up to um, when we're not around um, and what, you know, what's on their minds. Well, Trying I want to represent that. <laughs> yeah, so I definitely want to delve into that for sure. But so just as far as your own personal feelings about dogs, I mean, did you grow up with dogs? Were dogs important to you and your family as a kid? Where did the dog thing first kind of kick in? Yeah, I remember begging for a dog every single day, literally for years until my parents finally conceded. And I grew up with a childhood dog called Mikey. And I remember when he passed away, and maybe a lot of people experience this, I felt this need to sort of suppress my grief at his passing because he wasn't a human member of my family. It wasn't taken as seriously. And so I think I was really sort of shocked into wanting to make a film that was in a way a redemption of my grieving process, that to the film is an assertion of lives that maybe many might consider insignificant, particularly stray dogs, um, and, and to see if we look closely at them, that they're worthy of story and they're worthy of filling a cinema and, and occupying a feature length duration. Yeah. Um, so- that's sort of the impetus. Right, and, and if I'm not mistaken, the, the film is uh, at the very end, uh, as the credits run, is uh, dedicated in, in memory of Mikey, if I'm not mistaken. 
Yeah. yeah, you're so observant. <laughs> well, no, that's, uh, you figure, well, okay, well, who's Mikey? And by the years, I thought, okay, might might well be a dog based on the film that I just watched. So um, so, uh, so, tell me about deciding to make this film. It's one thing to have a real connection with dogs, and I really, I don't, I don't mean to gloss over the thing you said about, because we talked about this on this show a number of times, how when people lose a dog or lose another animal, how people around them, if they're fellow dog or cat lovers, they totally get it and are empathetic, whereas other people who don't quite feel that way about animals don't understand what all the fuss is about and just kind of mm-hmm. say, hey, get over it. It was just a dog. And it's like, oh, we'll never have that discussion yeah. effectively. Yeah, completely. Um, yeah, and it's I, I found I find that it's it's it might very much be cultural, although anthropocentrism and human supremacy reigns around the world. Um, what really drew me to Turkey, I think, was that they had such a different relationship with dogs, and there was this profound level of respect for their agency, separate from our lives, and so that's. That's kind of what what drew me to there. It was refreshing to to witness a culture that was totally different and foreign and alien to what I had been brought up with, both in Hong Kong and and the States. And when did you first hear about the strays in Turkey? And relative to that, when did you start thinking, that's really interesting, maybe that's a movie? Yeah, so originally I had wanted to go around the world and do sort of a global cultural comparison of dogs in the style of Michael Glauberger's documentaries, where I go to China, Russia, and, and Turkey and then compare the way dogs are treated, stray dogs are treated. And the reason why I picked Turkey as our first stop was I had read this fascinating history um, about the history of stray dogs where they were persecuted and people fought for their rights to roam freely. Um, very recently, actually in 2004, where they passed these laws where it's it's illegal to euthanize them and to hold them in captivity. And once I landed there, I realized you could set an entire film here. And then in the edit, I discovered, you know, Zaytan, the star of the film, and Nazar and, and Kartal were enough to hang the narrative of it on. And yeah, I think I think what I noticed in Turkey, the relationship, the way that the city embraced the stray dogs and were proud of their existence instead of ashamed, I was really struck by that. Yeah, and I think you're right about hanging a film on these three dogs. I mean, just Zayton herself could probably carry several movies just because she seems just so uh, compelling and there's just this sort of majestic presence and uh, her eyes are incredible. But how did you, actually, let's get into that a bit more because there's all these strays and and really we're talking about gigantic numbers of strays given the the rule and the law Mm -hmm. in Turkey. So how did you identify these three or zero in on these three when there were probably countless others that were also interesting and also photogenic and also maybe did interesting things during the day as you kind of watch them. Yeah. Um, so I first encountered Zaytan and Nazar, the two adult dogs in the film. We were Zainab Kapralu, my um, co-producer and I, she's based in Istanbul. We were walking in the city and suddenly we were in this really busy underground tunnel. And suddenly I see these two huge dogs streaking past us, weaving between people's feet, you know, really seeming like they had a mission and, and, and a place to be. And that really piqued my interest because you think about stray dogs and they don't have families, they don't have homes, they don't have jobs. Where could they be? headed. And so we chased after them and they turned out to be on the heels of the young Syrian men who feature prominently in the film. And it was their relationship, the young men, that really drew me in. That I was so moved by the literal and emotional warmth that the young men found in the dogs and the sense of home and belonging. They've, after being displaced themselves. And and also what really struck me about Zaytan is that 
we filmed with many dogs in the casting process, but a lot of times the dogs would inadvertently follow us back. And so, you know, we'd show up to film with them and they'd just kind of hang around us because they had bonded with us, which completely defeated the premise of the film, which is to envelop you in a non-human will and see where that took you instead of us orchestrating everything and us, our desires and our human will and, and what we thought was interesting um, to take us there. And Zayton was one of these dogs, one of the only dogs actually, who had this rare capacity to be very independent, very stubborn. And that allowed us to follow her where she wanted to go. She wouldn't follow me anywhere. Wow. <laughs> and that quality is what made her the star. And with that in mind, how did she seem to feel about being filmed? I don't know. I mean, I think this was done, if I recall, over a, a span of a couple of years or so, where I guess you would periodically go yeah. back and pick up the filming. Yeah. But but either way, I mean, you know, to get some of those shots and some of that footage, you're clearly up very close to Zay. Yeah. So a lot of dogs would say, okay, enough now, or not dig it, or just was sending you away and some clear message. But, uh, I mean, I think, I think that the stereotype that dogs know who is good to them, and if you're good to a dog, that dog is really going to be good to you. And I feel that sort of across the board and, and especially with Zayton was true. She tolerated our presence and, and sometimes she would just run off, you know, unexpectedly. And I'd have to adapt to that and, and chase after her. Um, and, and it would be she would hear sounds that I couldn't hear or smell things I couldn't smell. And that was very much a part of the filmmaking process, adapting, trying to adapt my senses to a dog's understanding of the world and surrendering sort of everything I felt was important um, and letting her dictate. And yeah, I don't know. I think dogs, because the dogs are treated so well in Istanbul, they were just really well socialized. Um, and I was never ever, they were never ever aggressive with me. If anything, they would become aggressive to people who were sort of bothering our production. Oh, really? Um, wow. So they had kind of a canine security crews keeping people away from interrupting the filming. Yeah. yeah, I always felt very safe around them. <laughs> That's great. Well, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is filmmaker Elizabeth Lowe, who directed Stray, a very uh, innovative documentary about the stray dogs who roam freely in Turkey. It ends up being uh, about a lot more than that, ultimately, of course. And Stray opens in theaters and on demand this Friday, March 5th. If you'd like to ask Elizabeth a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813 813- Three four three three zero eight eight five. So another thing about watching Zayton in the film was watching her navigate through traffic, sometimes rush hour traffic, which is both impressive and scary. I mean, traffic would seem to represent a pretty major peril for stray dogs. There are just so many things that can go wrong, even if the dog is smart and careful, which Zayton clearly is. Well, they're working on a film. Did you see anything unfortunate between cars and stray dogs or any at least near misses? Yeah, and, and actually in all my time there, I never saw a dog who was injured by a car. I'm sure it happens, but the dogs that we were filming with were really smart. And, you know, there were times when I completely trusted Zayton's judgment of the speed of cars and the oncoming uh, vehicles and would just follow her almost blindly uh, across roads, across highways. And actually one of the scenes in the film there's this really busy intersection and she wanders right up into the middle of it and decides to plop down and just sits there or lays there in the middle of all this traffic. And it's this incredible tableau that I loved as a filmmaker, as I was filming it. I knew that she wasn't in real danger. I think she had made a calculated, she had made a calculation as she decided to plop herself there. Um, 
but I loved it because it kind of showcased the precarity of life lived on the streets for another species in a human dominated world, but also the mysteriousness of a dog's, you know, uh, will and what they're thinking. Cause yeah. I had no idea what her intentions were in laying down in the middle of the traffic, but then it was in post-production as I was editing the film. And this was a really humbling moment. I see right before she sits down in the traffic, she looks at me and I swear she was winking at me saying, huh. did you get shot? Almost because she could sense my desires, even though I thought I wasn't expressing it. And so the whole time I thought I was just observing her and filming her, but she actually was observing me the whole time and she could read my emotions so well. And I only discovered that in post-production. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it might sound a, a little improbable to people listening that haven't seen the film, but once you get a, a load of uh, Zaytan in action, and again, like I said earlier, kind of this majestic presence, incredibly expressive eyes even as dogs go and and then kind of like a wisdom so that totally hangs together with what you're saying about like a knowing nod or wink or whatever that you only found in in editing so so that's great that yeah because uh when she when she sat down in that in the middle like that that, oh my goodness this seems even as as deft as she is this seems like asking for trouble but she seemed to know exactly what she was doing and uh had it totally under control as as always apparently yeah yeah so uh, we see a slew of dogs over the course of the film. There really are just three who kind of o- occupy center stage. Zayton is, uh, that we've obviously talked about, as well as Nazar and is a cartel. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to pronounce some of these. But um, yeah. So let's talk about the other two. What drew you to them to the extent that they became prominent figures in your film and obviously helped you tell the story that you were seeking to tell? Yeah, I mean, Nazar, I was drawn to her partly because she was a part of Zayton's world. And we were filming with them both at first, but Zayton's face just spoke to the camera so much she slowly overtook the film. Um, and Nazar also had an even closer relationship with the young men. Um, and with Kartal, We had actually begun filming on this construction site where these security guards would feed uh, all these stray puppies and their mothers who were living and sheltering on the construction site. And then one day, the young men that we were filming with and Zayton, they lived really nearby and they wandered in and they stole cartel from his home base. And that's how cartel sort of inadvertently became a part of Zayton's story as cartels adapting to the streets and, and, and sort of looking for a substitute maternal figure in the midst of losing his own mother from being stolen. Yeah. Um, that's, you see that kind of micro dramas play out. And that was actually like a huge ethical dilemma in our production. We wondered, do we intervene? Cause it was clear that cartel, the puppy was suffering under the care of the young men who, of course, their, their lifestyle is very itinerant, but we also felt like it wasn't our role to, play God because we didn't know if if maybe Cartel's life would end up better under the care of the young men rather than staying on the construction site and all these speculative questions that you know we didn't know how to answer. Yeah, it's interesting because I was going to ask that very question because Cartel is super sweet and of course incredibly you know just a, a great looking puppy, but she is a puppy, and mm. so I wondered if you had struggles while making a film where where you might be torn about capturing what you saw it, it is a documentary after all and then intervening yeah. if a dog like cartel seemed to need help i guess ultimately the, the police sort of intervened themselves right because uh, yeah. uh and they sort of took matters into their hands just because it was it was wrong and cartel was was kind of snatched away so i guess that's yeah I mean, yeah i mean i have no idea about the whereabouts of cartel because when we asked the police 
where she he was, they never were truthful about it. And I can only hope that one of the police took Kartal in to their own family and that Kartal as well. But yeah, it is very complicated. It's the documentary relationship. And I'm not of the school of filmmakers who believes that you just record reality around you and you don't intervene because yeah. I, I very much believe that no piece of art is imp- more important than the life that is being documented. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that was that was really yeah that was a troubling sort of episode in yeah. production. So you never saw a cartel again then after the police no. did. Uh, yeah. Okay, interesting. We tried searching for him, you know, everywhere, putting yeah. up all these pictures, and and so yeah, those that was one of the moments that I wish I had intervened earlier, despite all our hesitations, because you know on some level these the young men they craved these puppies, and yeah. partly I think comes from this deep desire to grow their pack on the streets, to increase their sense of belonging in Istanbul, and also to sort of care for for someone else, despite the harshness of their own conditions. So who was I to take that away from them also? It was was really tough. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting because really a pivotal and sort of overlapping storyline with the dog storylines are these uh, three in particular homeless, somewhat nomadic Syrian um, refugee boys. And they they obviously feel a real kinship with the dogs for the reasons you've just kind of outlined and and others. And fairly immediately one sees that these boys are strays also. And Mm -hmm. uh, they're sharing a number of traits with our three uh, in particular key canines. But just generally... So you see why they would be so drawn to them, even if they make some maybe shaky judgments like the Kartal incident. Or, but you just feel like they really have a hunger to make connections and they're just kind of really li- living this very nomadic life w- without yeah. hanging with the dogs or having some kind of time with the dogs. So it, it becomes really important to them. Yeah, I mean, the dogs, in many ways, they are the least judgmental of beings compared to everyone else around them. They, you know, dogs don't have prejudices about whether you hold citizenship or whether you're from a different culture. Um, and I think that's why the, the young men took so much comfort in Zaytan and Nazar and Kartal. Yeah. And I asked earlier how uh, Zaytan and others, especially Zaytan, though, uh, seem to feel about being filmed and all the things that go with that. How did the boys seem to feel about your filming them? I mean, they were really, really welcoming and warm and hospitable to me, even though we didn't speak the same language. And uh, we would have to speak through uh, Zainab Kaprulu or Zainab Aslanoba, the two co-producers on the film. Um, it was, they. I think because we had this shared passion for the dogs and they could understand that about me and I could completely understand that about them, especially Jamil's obsession with dogs and acquiring more puppies. There was just a lot of mutual respect and they were, yeah, very open. And it wasn't, it's, it's funny because when I set out to make the film, it wasn't like I intentionally included, um, you know, these young men it was Zaytan who led us there. Mm. But I also always knew in making a film about a stray dog that because stray dogs don't occupy private spaces, they're always in public spaces. The populations that they would encounter would also be, you know, people who are marginalized or, you know, relegated to the streets, whether it's women who are protesting for their rights or musicians busking on the side of a, a road or, or the young Syrian men who are trying to make a living and get by in a country not yet their own. Yeah. And again, other adult uh, encounters they have often are people like telling them to, to get out and being scolded and because they're squatting and they're doing all kinds of things beyond that. So the fact that you guys were just saying, hey, we're just trying to film here. We're not 
hassling you or criticizing you or whatever probably made that an easier exchange as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So when you talk about deciding to make a film about stray dogs, how, where along the line did you decide how you were going to actually tell that story and in some of the specific ways that are distinctive about stray? You know, I was going to joke at one point that uh, the, uh, the edition that, that I got to see uh, to prepare for this conversation had some sort of problem with the audio because I couldn't hear the narrator. But I thought, you know, okay, this guy's way too dumb to speak with and I'm, I'm getting off the call right now. But uh, there is no narration which um, is super interesting what you do instead part of what makes the film I think really special and distinctive but how where along the line did you decide how you were going to tell the story and what I mean I know some of it was just filming and seeing kind of what happened and pretty soon Zayton emerged and then Zayton led you and these other paths so there was that part but in terms of some of the other stuff about the actual storytelling and what appeared on the screen where and how did you kind of make those decisions? Yeah I knew very early on that narration and voiceover interview had no place in this film because cinema is sort of the perfect tool to try to at least attempt to represent a language older than words, um, to, to ask audiences to engage with senses that go beyond the verbal, that are so prescriptive, and to just ask audiences to immerse and observe things that you might normally, you know, not bother to look twice at. Um, and in terms of the construction of the film. I remember it was really tough when we were pitching the film. People would always ask, who is this film really about? Is this, whose story is this? Is this humanity story, the human condition, or is this about dogs? And I remember struggling through that in the edit a lot. But one thing that was really important to me was as seductive as sort of the relationship with the young men and Zayton is, because that's a relationship that we're familiar with, the bond between um, dogs and humans. I also wanted to be very sure that the film didn't let that over that dynamic overtake it, that I that the film does ask audiences to just stay with a dog, um, even without dialogue for long periods of time and invest in uh, in circles away from humans, because I feel like at least as a person living in this world, um, based on my understanding, anthropocentrism and placing humans at the center of the world is so toxic and so destructive. And so I wanted this film to play its part in sort of decentering ourselves a little bit. And in the end, I think with this dilemma between whether this was a human story or a dog story. What I realized as the film kind of interweaves between Zayton's sol solitary life and her relationships with all the people in the city, that that's a false dichotomy, like the human and the non-human, that they're actually, especially with the his our evolution with dogs, we're deeply entwined. And so I think that's what the, the spirit of the film is. And that's what guided me in the edit, I think. Yeah, because that's the thing. I mean, this film, it's not from that human standpoint. It's, uh, it is really from both and the way those are sort of... Uh, inherently interwoven, but but you obviously set out kind of or, or eventually ended up on the path to really make a film that wasn't about because a lot of people would go in somewhere else, whether it's Turkey or somewhere else, where there's a stray dogs and and make this very well-meaning documentary about the problem, what do we do about it, and how do we round up the dogs, and all the totally kind of missing the point of... Yeah. So it really is, you don't have to choose between that dichotomy because it really is both, and that's part of the magic of the film, I think. Thanks. Yeah, I think 
I think this an impulse that we have a lot in the West to conceive of stray dogs as a problem at all is what I realized over the course of making this film is what the most insane part about how we conceive of stray animals. The fact that if you're a dog and you happen to be born in New York, if you look like a dog, you basically cannot exist on the streets. You cannot exist you're going to be persecuted and you're going to be leashed unless you belong to someone and unless you're somebody's property. And that's actually just an insane way to conceive of, of our world. When dogs are so perfectly adapted and able to live, you know, off of our trash and around us and off of our mercy and leftovers. And that was something that I learned that Turkey showed this way of life of what was possible that, Dogs don't have to be languishing in shelters and we don't have to be rounding all of them up and giving all of them homes because they're perfectly capable of making homes around us. Yeah. 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 No, that's really interesting. Let me just uh, let folks know we might only be joining the, the show now. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Trust. My guest is Elizabeth Lowe, who produced, directed, filmed, and edited Stray, an innovative documentary about the stray dogs who roam freely in Turkey. And I have mentioned once or twice, uh, Elizabeth, but just, uh, in fact, I got an email related to this. Where specifically, as of Friday, on at least on demand, can people see Stray? Um, as of Friday, it'll be released in 180 virtual cinemas across the country. Um, and also, if you go to www.straymovie.com, you'll be able to find out if there's like a drive-in playing close to you or what virtual cinemas you can support. And then in addition to that, it's playing on all the sort of major platforms like Amazon, iTunes. You can rent it for $4. Um, yeah. Okay. So it's, it's on the platforms. Yeah. So really a, there, you, there's a number of ways to see it and for people who are hearing this conversation and saying, gosh, this sounds really cool. And yeah, something, of course, as, as everybody is uh, still in some version of lockdown, of course, you can see it on uh, Amazon or iTunes in your living room <laughs> if you want to. But I, I imagine the virtual cinema thing would be really uh, even a better way just because of some of the... Uh, the uh, pictures and cinematography and stuff involved in the film. But when you talked about what a lot of people's first instinct would be to do about strays and rounding them up, that reminded me that over the course of the film, we hear and see things that are intriguing or amusing. Often when the audio and the video are presenting very different things, and one notable example is when we see and hear a protest on the streets and we see two dogs humping at the same time. So yeah. I found that entertaining, but it was also one of the moments when I wondered if all these strays also mean any kind of huge population explosion of the dogs in Turkey over these years. Um, I think right now there are about 130,000 stray dogs that live in Turkey or Istanbul, Istanbul only. And the government does have a program where they vaccinate the dogs and they spay and neuter them. Uh, Zeytin and Nazar, I believe, don't happen to be neutered. And actually, near the end of the shoot, Nazar actually, I think, actually from that one copulation at the protest that I filmed, by then, before we left Turkey, she was pregnant and she gave birth to all these puppies. And I don't know, I don't want to say that it's a problem um, because I think oftentimes we conceive of of animals reproducing as somehow a problem when I think the environment sustains as many beings as it can hold and however many people are communally caring for these dogs and willing to feed them, which in Istanbul is a lot. Uh, but yeah, those, that's one of my favorite scenes, the scene where uh, it's Nazar who wanders into the women's march and is overhearing these women protest for their rights. And at the same time, she's having sex with another dog, yeah. which completely sort of undercuts 
all the human drama that's happening around her. For sure. <laughs> no, it's great. And there, that's probably as pronounced as any, but there's a bunch of things. Because we do hear audio, like we, we've established, there's no narration, but there is audio. There's a, a, just this great sort of zesty uh, score most of the time through the film. But at times we are hearing or, or, or like sort of overheard dialogue either about the dogs or what's going on near the dogs while we usually see the dogs on screen or what might be taking place, who's speaking. But it's uh, often a great and unusual juxtaposition. And, and again, another way to sort of advance the story in a different way. So now were you able to observe during your time there, what happens on the other hand when a stray dog gets sick? Um, I think so when a stray dog gets sick, I believe uh, Turkish citizens will step in and call uh, the government shelters, the municipality forces to come and pick the dog up and and heal them. And I visited we visited a lot of shelters, government shelters in Istanbul, and the shelters are filled with either dogs who are unable to survive on the streets or they were sick and healing um, and also with Kartal, when Kartal seemed like he was suffering, we encouraged the, the boys to take him to a vet. And, you know, the boys had a, a vet that they regularly went to who offered their dogs free service, free mm. care. Okay. So it feels, I don't know, I have a lot of confidence in the way that dogs are managed there or taken care of there. Like you can see when you're wandering through Istanbul, and when I look at the footage, the dogs that Zaytan encounters, some of them are very old and you can see it in their whiskers and their whiteness on their face. And even over the course of filming over several years, we were able to find those same dogs after like a year and a half of a hiatus, which was incredible to many uh, people who thought I would never be able to find Zaytan and her companions again. Yeah. But we did. And so that suggests to me dogs live pretty long lives, even though supposedly the statistic is four years i feel like it's much much longer than that based on all the dogs that i see and the older dogs that i see continuing to live on the streets yeah there's something again i think very unusual about turkey and what it's decided to do and then how that plays out for the dogs because you would just think otherwise coming into it if you're a dog lover and anything about dogs or or just dogs on the loose or dogs that don't have a home or whatever that there would be a lot of problems and they would be up against all kinds of difficulties. And somehow, I guess, because maybe the way Turkey administers this, uh, I'm not mm -hmm. sure if there's some other X factor that enters into this somehow, but it doesn't seem, from what I can gather, to be anywhere near the kind of problem. And actually, it seems to work surprisingly well uh, over X amount of years' time. Yeah, actually, in the making of the film, I think as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, you know that you know your protagonist has to go through trials and tribulations for your audience to sympathize with, with the protagonist. And one of the problems that we actually had while filming with Zaytan is that she doesn't, she's, you know, Istanbul is so friendly to dogs that nothing bad really happened to her other than like sometimes a dog fight or a scuffle as she wandered into other dogs territory and that was something that is also very representative the film i believe is very representative of of life on the streets for dogs in istanbul that it is you know not bad at all and and the film is a celebration of stray culture and in fact we do see a bit of a, a fighting on screen how often did you witness the dogs fighting and how ugly did it seem to get I think the scene in the film that where Zaytan and Nazar end up fighting once they reunite with the boys after fighting over the bone, mm. I think that was one of the most sort of ugly or loud battles. Okay. And neither of them really hurt each other. Yeah. 
I think you can see on Zetan's face, she's really hurt emotionally by the experience, especially after the, the young men, they leave with Nazar because Nazar is closer to the young men and Zetan's kind of left alone yeah. to lick her wounds. Um, but that's actually the, the most violent I saw dogs get. And it's very much you can see that different dogs have different friendships throughout the city. There are dogs that they that Zetan got along with, and then there were dogs that Zetan didn't really get along with. And all the other dogs knew also who was friend or foe. And there also seems to be factions of humans with some of the dog factions. And, and there's a neat scene with someone making a big pot of food. At first, we don't know as we're yeah. seeing the food come together, like what it is or who it's for, whatever. But of course, it turns out to be for the dogs and mm -hmm. uh, seemed to be kind of a certain ritual element to it, both in the preparation and then in the distribution of it. And I thought, okay, well, at least for these dogs who are lucky enough to be close to whoever these people are, they're getting a nice meal, at least periodically, if not regularly. Yeah, they, th those men, they're the security guards of the construction site in which Cartel was born. They fed and prepared meals for the dogs there were like 30 dogs on that property every single night. Um, and throughout the city of Istanbul, I think that was typical behavior. And I would ask people that would wake up at 6 a.m., the, the butcher shop workers and the restaurant workers, why they would bother to you know collect all the scraps and then distribute them to the seagulls, the cats and the dogs. And a lot of times the people who were um, religious would tell me it was because Islam dictates that you have to feed the the silent and the and the needy. So I think in in some ways it's very much sort of the working class backbone of Istanbul, all the restaurant workers and and such that are that are supporting nutritionally yeah. all the strands. But across it cut across all classes, I feel like all classes of of Turkish society in Istanbul that everybody was feeding them all the time and and caring for them and giving them affection. Yeah. Sure seem like it. And by the way, one of our uh, emailers says, love the show today. Where can we see the film? Which I think we've already established. And again, uh, for people who missed that earlier, and go to straymovie.com and find out all kinds of uh, virtual cinemas and other places to see it. But it's also available on platforms like Amazon, iTunes, etc. So plenty of, plenty of different places you can see Stray starting on Friday. I noticed that on the film's Instagram page, there were comments from people who'd seen Stray and we're asking if anyone had adopted Zaytan or saying they might like to adopt Zaytan. And I, th and I thought, you know, these folks seem super kind-hearted, but may have misunderstood the film, kind of. Yeah, no, no. When I see comments like that, I feel very tempted to respond and be like, no, actually her life is rich and glorious. And even if it may be a little bit shorter than a pet dog's, I would never put her through that transition. Like I would try to put a leash and collar on, on Zaytan at one point because I want to lead her somewhere, the producer in me. But she refused. The moment I put that collar and leash on her she just sat down and refused to move because she was like this is not happening <laughs> yeah this isn't this isn't how i roll yeah 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 and this and, and I, oh go ahead sorry nothing i was just gonna say like seeing the way dogs live and if left to their own devices how much they like how long their walks that they take themselves on last hours and hours i thought really i felt really guilty about how my childhood dog you know he had two walks a day or three walks a day but that's not nearly enough based on on the way that dogs truly you know the, the amount of adventure that dogs want to go on yeah based on these yeah so back to these well-meaning people writing these comments let me ask you this sounds kind of nutty at first but just just bear with me for a sec so i assume you probably saw zombie land zombie land yeah the movie with uh francis mcdormand <gasps> 
Oh, you mean no mask? Oh, yeah. sorry, no, yeah, okay, sorry, yeah. I'm, oh, I'm, getting, I'm getting my ahead of myself with the uh, the, the zombie okay. part, but anyway, sorry. No, I haven't yet seen it. I actually intend to watch it tonight. <laughs> okay, well, okay, then, uh, because there's found this sort of, I thought, interesting parallel because, between the, the Frances McDormand character, Fern, who oh. ultimately, you know, even with this nice different life offered by the David Strathairn character, she really ultimately preferred to stick with her kind of solo ways. And to me, it just seemed like kind of that was echoed in Zayton, really, like that Zayton, even if given the opportunity to, to live differently, whatever, probably would say, no, thank I'm good with what I'm doing now and I'm super happy and I like I like my life. Yeah, I love that because actually my sister told me she was like, basically Stray is like Nomadland. But instead of Fern, <laughs> the character played by Francis McDormand, it's Zayton wandering okay. through. Well, there you go. So, so I'm not as wacky as I might have thought then. Okay, because I really... Oh, no, you're on the same wavelength as my sister, and it's a very kind comment. I, I can't wait to see the film. Yeah, okay. Because, <laughs> yeah, I, I saw them kind of within a few days of each other, and I thought, wow, oh. this is uh, there's a, there's really an interesting uh, link here. So we're kind of in our final couple moments, Elizabeth, but one of the things that we referred to without some specifics about... Uh, things that are put up on the screen in terms of uh, title cards or text or whatever the right term is. And one of the, the, the running elements is the text that you occasionally display quoting Diogenes. Why and how did that idea sort of come to you as a running element? Yeah, as we were conceiving of the film, my producer Shane Boris and I were discussing, and he actually was the one who introduced me to Diogenes, this Greek philosopher who modeled his entire way of life and philosophy on stray dogs, being that because they're separate from having work and marriage and property and wealth that they because they're not complicit in those in those traditions uh that they were best to unpack and challenge human folly uh and that seemed to speak perfectly to the message of stray even as zayton is overhearing all the conversations that happen around her couples arguing over instagram um, you see from the sound design, like she pays attention and then she's out, you know, these yeah. things don't matter to dogs, the things that we care so deeply about. Um, and I was really moved by that. And also Diogenes was actually born in Sinope, which is today modern in modern day Turkey today. Yeah. So I think the landscape, the animals that were there around him, I think there's a lot of connection, even though it's thousands of years ago, that this idea to look at dogs and, and discover something much deeper about them and also ourselves is an ancient idea. And this film is sort of put it, trying to put that into practice. Perfect. Yeah, that's great. That might be just the right place at which to leave our uh, conversation. So, again, we've been speaking with Elizabeth Lowe. Her film is Stray, as uh, probably gathered by now. I loved, loved, loved the film. been thinking about it a lot and sort of can't, like, getting antsy to, to Friday because I really want to see it again. But, um, yeah. and again, it's available on uh, streaming services, Amazon, iTunes, etc. And you have some other options to you can find out where you can see it in the different contexts at straymovie.com. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals. Thank you so much. And good luck with the film. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. In a moment, I'll speak with Amanda White of the Humane Society of the U.S. about the horrible Wisconsin wolf carnage that happened last week in an attempt to understand it and in the hope that it's not able to be echoed again anywhere. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with one of our faves, Jim Gaffigan, with a piece called A Good Dad. And this is a snippet from that piece we're calling I Rescued a Dog in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. 
try to be a good dad. I got my kids a dog. I rescued a dog. Thank you. Thank you. I, well, it's not like the dog was drowning. The dog wasn't a victim of sex trafficking. I just went in a building, gave a guy money, and got a dog. That's how I rescued it. After that, I rescued a pizza. to wait to rescue the dog because the dog was in Jamaica. I don't know if it was on vacation. <laughs> but I rescued a dog from paradise so it could live in my crowded New York City apartment. Sometimes I put the leash on the dog and it looks at me like, I used to run on the beach. <laughs> and now I sleep in a cage. My only hope is that one day you'll get rescued. But rescue is the language of today, right? And we mean adoption. Now, people don't even say they own dogs. Now people say they're a dog parent. But I feel like dogs are different from kids. Like, you, you never hear a parent say, you know, my son had some behavior problems, so we gave him to a friend who had a farm upstate. <laughs> and we can run around and we'll visit him on weekends. <laughs> Jim, you're a monster. That was Jim Gaffigan. In today's Comedy Corner, with a bit we're calling I Rescued a Dog, pulled from a longer piece called A Good Dad, and that's taken from his album, Noble Ape. Now it's time to speak with Amanda White, Program Manager of Wildlife Protection at the Humane Society of the United States, about that awful situation last week where wolves were killed in Wisconsin by hunters twice the sanctioned number somehow. So this is Amanda White on Talking Animals on WF. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning, Duncan. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So this is, well, anyway, let's just dive into what seems like a really mismanaged fiasco from top to bottom. Maybe we could start with what was supposed to happen, and then we'll go from there, maybe. Yeah. So following, you know, a misguided court decision, the state was forced to rush into a wolf hunt with little to no time to seek input from Wisconsin residents, tribal nations, or the scientific community. Uh, the state's natural resource board set a quota of 200 wolves, um, which after tribal declarations was reduced to 119 wolves. Um, they made over 2,000 permits available, which was, it was 20 times that 119 quota over what was supposed to be a week-long season. Um, however, after less than 60 hours, all of the hunting zones had to be closed because they had killed 216 um, which was nearly double the quota, like you mentioned. Um, and these individual wolves, they were killed just using very cruel and egregious methods. Uh, most of them, um, 86%, according to the Department of Natural Resources, were chased down as packs of dogs. Um, and others were killed in steel-jawed leg hold traps and strangling neck snares. Um, and the hunt actually also took place during the wolves' breeding season. Um, and so it's likely that some pregnant females were killed as well, which is just awful. Oh, God. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine that the story could get worse than what I thought I knew, but uh, this is even uglier. So one question, is this, well, I don't know, policy might be too flattering, but is this a carryover from the Trump administration that this would even happen? So the Trump administration took uh, wolves off the endangered species list. Yeah. Um, yeah, that decision went into effect on January 4th of this year. Um and so that's why um, under Wisconsin state law, um, the state is 
required to establish uh, an annual wolf hunting and trapping season when wolves are not uh, under federal Endangered Species Act protection. So given that the whatever number and whatever supposed rules or protocols were, were obviously ignored, wh- why would you say that this happened? And more to the point, what can we learn about it to prevent anything remotely like this happening again anywhere, much less just in Wisconsin? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it was, I think they went over quota for a couple of different reasons. Um, first and foremost, just the no holds barred approach to the methods that were used from, like I said, packs of dogs to traps to electronic predator calls. Um, and then also under Wisconsin state law, hunters had up to 24 hours to report any wolves that they killed. And then the state also had to give 24 hours notice before closing a hunting zone. Um, And so there was sort of that extra time built in. And I think, you know, it really just highlights the importance of getting federal protections restored to wolves, both in the Great Lakes region and, um, you know, in the other places where they were delisted under the Trump administration. And it also, you know, demonstrates that it's time to stop playing politics with our country's most iconic species like wolves. Um, You know, Wisconsin is the only state in the country that, that mandates a yearly wolf hunting season. Uh, when they're not federally protected. Um, And that law was put into place by lawmakers, not scientists. Um, And so it's just, it's really important that people who care about wildlife um, keep a watchful eye on their decision makers and ensure that when it comes to wildlife and wolves, we're making decisions based on, you know, sound science and ethics, not uh, using them as political pawns. Well, this just uh, this just seems so sickening, and you just feel like you want to do whatever you can just to make sure that it just would not be a chance of something this horrific being repeated. Mm-hmm. Is there anyone in our final uh, moment here, maybe Amanda? Uh, is there anyone to to write uh, for people listening for us to write or call just to uh, voice our displeasure uh, at the very least, but also just make sure that that people know that we are counting on steps to be taken so that this could never, ever be uh, repeated or anything like it again? Yeah, I think, um, you know, for for people who live in Wisconsin or other states in the Great Lakes region, or if you have friends or family who live there, Mm -hmm. um, definitely encourage them to, um, you know, reach out to their decision makers, both their, you know, state lawmakers and also, um, you know, the the board or the commission that makes decisions around wildlife. For people outside that area, I think you can, you know, contact the Department of Tourism or um, the governor and and let them know that, you know, you don't approve of these practices and, um, you know, you'll consider that when thinking about where you'll go to visit. Um, And and in the meantime, we're also, the Humane Society of the United States, along with our allies, we are... um, fighting in federal court to restore federal protections for wolves. Yeah. And let me ask you this, in a situation like this one, uh, could people who don't live in the Wisconsin or that area uh, still write to the lawmakers that are responsible in those areas just to uh, register complaints and and register outrage and alarm, or would that be kind of ineffective? You know, I think it's, yes, I I think they definitely can. you know, we've seen this, the hunt that took place last week has been picked up in outlets all over the country. And, you know, I think it's it's more important than ever to let 
these states know that that the country is watching and we are keeping an eye on this. Yeah. Good. All right, Amanda. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to kind of give us some uh, insight and analysis of, uh, again, what really seemed to just be an awful situation in just about every way. So um, we appreciate it. So thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. I really appreciate your time and your input. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. I'm Duncan Strauss. You're listening to Talking Animals coming up at 11 on WNF. It's Rob Lorre with Radioactivity followed at noon by Midpoint with Nola. Then at 1 p.m. the music kicks back in with 360 Degrees of Blues hosted by Harrison Nash followed by Scott Elliott in the All Souls edition of It's the Music. Meanwhile, on this show at the moment is the prize for Name That Animal Tune. I'll be offering a copy of Rock and Roll Over, a CD of all dog songs, to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. It's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. Team, we'll probably take your guests after we've gotten off the air because we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Next Wednesday, my guest will be Dr. Caitlin O'Connell, a veteran elephant scientist whose new book is Wild Rituals, 10 Lessons Animals Can Teach Us About Connection, Community, and Ourselves. I invite you to join me for that. I also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. Apple Podcasts are available too, as well as other podcast platforms. Also links to our Facebook page, Instagram page, Twitter feed, and more. So you can check all that out. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter to find out about guests and other things and going on in the talking animals world. That's all found at TalkingAnimals.net. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. Rob Lora is up next after the NPR News. Thanks.